announcements today, but that's a lot of good stuff. Well, welcome again. My name is Derek McCollum. If I haven't met you, I look forward to doing so, and we are thankful to be together, gathered for worship and gathered around God's Word. We finished up kind of our, sur- our summer series last week on the book of Proverbs, and uh, we were kind of taking Proverbs a little more topically, talking about different topics every week. It's actually uh, our, our practice normally to, to walk through an entire or at least the majority of a book of the Bible together over a, over a larger chunk of time. We're going to start doing that next week when we're going to be in Daniel. So come back next week and you'll get to see us, uh, we'll get to, to jump into Daniel together. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. We'll be in Daniel from now until Christmas. Uh, but today we're going to look at a passage of scripture that really provides for us the basis for our mission and vision as a church, like what we're here for, why we exist. This church next week actually turns three years old. So we celebrate our three-year anniversary uh, of worship next week. Uh, and really, it's good to kind of ask ourselves this on a, we- on a yearly basis. Why are we here? Why do we exist? And what we have said is that we exist to connect people to God and to one another. We're going to see that's what's happening here in this passage in Acts chapter 2. If you've got a Bible, open it up to Acts chapter 2. We're at the last portion, the last few verses of that chapter. This is the young church gathered together, and we're going to see what they're all about. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, we are indeed thankful for your word. We ask that you would soften our hearts to hear it today, that you would open our ears and our eyes, and that you would speak to us, that you would reveal yourself to us more clearly through your word. We ask all of this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I was uh, leaving the office the other day, I got in my car, and, and I wanted to listen to a song. And my radio, my car radio, like many of yours probably will connect to my phone through Bluetooth, and it'll let me talk on the phone in my car and lets me listen to the music that's on my phone. It's pretty exciting. And I had a very particular song I wanted to listen to on my ride home, on my ride home from the office to my house. But my car wouldn't connect with my phone, and I couldn't get it to, to work, and, you know, it would, it would show up, and it just wouldn't, I wouldn't make any sound, and I messed with the volume knob, and I couldn't get anything. I tried, you know, all of the old standby tactics, turned off the radio, Turned it back on. That almost always works. Didn't work this time. Turned off the car completely. Turned it back on. Didn't do anything. Turned off my phone completely. Turned the phone back on. Didn't do a thing. Still couldn't get it to connect. And I probably spent close to 15 minutes trying to get the song I wanted to listen to on my three-minute drive from the office to my house, and I couldn't get it done. 
Isn't that crazy? We live in, in, a, in a deeply connected world, don't we? Don't we? Where we, we walk into a room and our devices automatically connect with each other. They automatically connect with the, the worldwide internet. Uh, and we get so frustrated when it can't happen. We have the ability to connect with friends who live on a different continent, just like that. But man, when it doesn't happen, it can just drive us bonkers. When my phone doesn't connect to my car or, you know, when my television doesn't connect to the cable company, it drives me crazy. We're wired for connection in our world. You know, interestingly enough, the Bible says that we are actually wired for connection as human beings. Of course, it goes a lot deeper than just our phones talking to our cars or our TVs talking to the cable company. We are wired for deep connection with one another and with our Creator. Now, maybe you, like me, have noticed the last six months have been a little difficult. <laughs> maybe that's stating it a little too lightly. A little difficult to connect. It's hard to connect, truly, when you have to stay far away from people physically. It's hard to connect when you can't see all of somebody's face. It's hard to connect when, you know, everybody's lives feel kind of fractured. But God has actually called us to connect with him and with each other. That yearning in our hearts that's there has been placed by the Lord. Again, that's really at the heart of our mission and vision as a church. We are here, we exist to connect people to God and to each other, to connect you to God and to others. And that's actually what this young church in Acts was about as well. They were about connection to God, connection to one another, and connection to the world around them, their neighbors. So that's how we're going to look at it today. We're going to look from Acts 2 here about what it means to connect with God and with others. We'll look first at that idea of connecting with God. I want you to look with me again at verse 42. We read that they have devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. These young Christians, and again, this comes after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, after his ascension in Acts 1, after uh, the Holy Spirit comes and testifies to that ascension uh, with this incredible act of the Holy Spirit through the, the apostles, and Peter gives this amazing sermon. And then we see here at the end of Acts 2, this communion of people, this congregation of folks, this church starting to build. And what are they connected to? What are they devoted to? Well, the first thing we hear is that they are devoted to the apostles' teaching. Now, the apostles' teaching for them would have been literally the apostles' teaching. They would have heard face-to-face, word-for-word from those who walked with Jesus, those who watched him die, those who witnessed his resurrection, those who saw him ascend to heaven. They would have heard those words either from the people who saw it or people very close by or some of these folks in Acts 2 may have seen it themselves. So they have the apostles' teaching, and they, of course, at the time would have had the Old Testament scriptures. They would have had the books of Moses, and they would have had the Psalms and the Proverbs, and they would have had the prophets. They would have had most of what we have here as our Bible. And we read here in Acts that they were devoted to God's word. That is first and foremost the thing that we want to devote ourselves to as a church. You know, God's people for thousands and thousands of years have been people of the book. We have been people centered around the scriptures. We believe that God has most perfectly revealed himself in 
his word. And we, as 21st century Americans, get to actually hold it in our hands and buy it at a bookstore. It's amazing. It gets printed and sent all over the world. Christians believe that God has revealed himself in this book. Now, can you go stand on the side of a mountain in the Rockies and look out on the distance and understand something about who God is? Sure. Can you understand something about who God is when you see a mother holding her young child? Sure. But you can't understand fully who God is if you don't understand his word. Because he has chosen to reveal himself fully and completely here, and we get to have it. So the first thing that we see that this young church is all about, and the main thing that we want to be about as a young church ourselves, is being devoted to God's word. We also see that they're devoted to the breaking of bread, we read here. Now, the breaking of bread can be interpreted probably a few different ways, but most scholars uh, agree, and I agree with them, uh, that this is probably talking about some early form of the Lord's Supper. That they're actually eating, partaking of the Lord's Supper together. We read a little further in that passage that they're attending the temple together daily. That's going to church. So they're going to church together, and at church they're actually celebrating the sacraments. They're celebrating the Lord's Supper together. We do that every week here because, uh, as Augustine said, we think they are wonderful visible words. Things that we get to see and hold and smell and taste that communicate God's goodness toward us. And then further, we see that they're devoted to prayers. They're devoted to communing with God in prayer. One of the incredible things that God has done out of his mercy and grace is given us a way to talk to him. And he's told us that he'll listen. We get to commune with him in prayer. We get to connect with our heavenly father simply by praying. And he actually listens to us. Word, sacrament, and prayer. It's actually something the church has for centuries called the means of grace. The regular means by which God communicates to us and we receive his love and grace and mercy. Regular things. And that's something worth kind of uh, hammering on for a second. Because Christianity does not say you've got to travel to a different country and climb this mountain and sit in this little particular temple on, uh, you know, your hands and knees in this way. That's how you commune with God. No. God has said, I'm going to reveal myself to you and I'm giving you some very basic things. My word, food and drink, prayer, and this is how you can connect with me. And what we read here is that the early Christians were devoted to these regular things. I heard a story uh, from Nick Reeves, who's the, the new headmaster of this school. He told this amazing story the other day about, uh, about this man uh, in, in Australia. And there's a race. There's a race in Australia, an ultra marathon that goes from uh, Melbourne to Sydney, or Sydney to Melbourne, either way. And for those non-Australians, uh, let me just say, that's a long distance. It is basically like going from New Braunfels to El Paso. And this is a race, this is a race, not in cars or motorcycles, but on feet. They run from Sydney to Melbourne. It's 540-something miles. So just think about getting up in the morning and running from here to El Paso. And the terrain is probably pretty similar. You know, think about running for days on end to El Paso. So the very first race of this was 1981, I think, and this man shows up, and he's wearing overalls and work boots. 
And he talks a little funny because he's taken his dentures out because he's 61 years old. And he shows up saying, I've registered to run this race. Of course, if you're the registrar there, you're thinking, you know, you're probably totally insane. You're wearing overalls. You don't have any teeth in, and you're 61 years old. How in the world are you going to run a 540-mile race? But sure enough, his name's here on the register, so they, they register him up. They get him ready to go. And when the gun goes off, everybody takes off and kind of leaves him behind because he's got this kind of slow, loping little trot that he does. He's a sheep farmer. So he's used to kind of rounding up his sheep with his slow, loping little trot. And by the end of the day, all the other runners are way, way, way ahead of this guy. But, of course, by the end of the day, all the other runners decide what normal people would decide to do, which is to go to sleep. And so they stop, and they sleep for about six hours, getting ready to get up the next day and run all day. Except this man doesn't stop. In fact, doesn't stop for five days he just keeps running, and that little slow, loping pace <laughs> gives him the lead at some point, which he takes, and ends up, he ends up winning the race by 10 hours. 10 hours he beats everybody by, because he literally ran for five days straight. That's pretty incredible. I, I mentioned this phrase last week in the sermon. Uh, it's the title of a Eugene Peterson book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. Sounds a lot like this runner, doesn't it? Sounds also a lot like this young church, a long obedience in the same direction, regular, step-by-step, daily devotion to word, sacrament, and prayer. Not a couple of mountaintop experiences, not a couple of peak, enormous, emotional activity happening, but regular activity. That's what connection to God actually looks like. Now, let me, let me caveat this. Let me just make sure I'm really clear because it could have maybe sounded to some of you like what I'm saying is the way that you actually connect with God, in fact, in a saving way, is by doing all the right things. That could not be further from the truth. In fact, we use this word gospel a lot in this church, and what gospel means is good news. And the good news of Jesus is just the opposite of that. In fact, it would be very bad news if what I was telling you was the way that you find uh, the union with God, the way that you find salvation, the way that you find eternal life, the way that you find a real identity is you just keep doing and doing and doing. Of course, that actually is what every other major philosophy and religion actually teaches, which is there's something you've got to do in order to connect with God. There's something that you must do in order to make yourself right with God, whether it's uh, visit some shrine or pursue some particular activity or pray this particular prayer or go about on this system. Every other philosophy does it, right? Whether that is uh, a political identity or a cultural identity or religious identity. You've got to do something in order to be found right and to kind of stay in that identity. It's about do. But this is what makes Christianity so unique, is that Christianity is actually about done. It's about what Jesus has done for us that we can't do for ourselves. The Bible says that Jesus has lived the life that we couldn't live in perfect conformity with God's law. That Jesus has died the death that we deserve. That Jesus has risen to new life to give us new life. And that Jesus will return. All of that is about what he has done 
and will continue to do, not what we do. So the gospel is about done, not about do. And so to become a Christian means to actually turn from that system of do and turn to this glorious freedom of done and to receive Jesus by faith, his work on your behalf. But of course, what does that do to our hearts? It makes us those who want to be devoted, who want to be devoted to a God who would shed his own blood for our sake. It makes us want to be devoted to a God who would come and take on human flesh and die so that we could live. It makes us want to be devoted to someone who would love us with such incredible love and mercy. Connection to God is based on his activity, but we have the beautiful freedom and privilege of being able to actively participate in that as well. Now let's move on to the second piece, connection with each other. That's our second goal, really, at Hope, is connection with each other. Look again at verse 43 with me. All came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And then actually jumping back up to 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. That word fellowship is really important. It is uh, the Greek word koinonia. And it is a huge word in the New Testament. Now, I don't know why, but as a kid, I, uh, I got confused with the term, the, the word koinonia and cornucopia. And so I always, like, whenever I heard koinonia, I thought of this, like, fruit basket. Um, you know, which is kind of cool, but not really enough. Koinonia, koinonia <laughs> if I can say it, means a lot more than fruit basket. In fact, it means a lot more even than the word fellowship that we're translating it with. That's probably not powerful enough to communicate the force of this Greek word. It's really about intimate connection. Koinonia is the word that's oftentimes used to describe marital relationship in the Bible. It is about deep, intimate connection, commonality, unity. And that's the word that's actually used to describe how these brothers and sisters in Christ were, uh, were together. In fact, we get a description of what it looks like in a minute. But interestingly, uh, you know, that is something I think that we all really yearn for, isn't it? Listen to the, to the words of this writer, a woman named Bunmi Laditan. Uh, she's, wrote, she's written uh, a little essay called I Miss the Village, where she's really describing the village that she didn't grow up in that her heart really yearns for now that she's a mother. Listen to the way that she describes it. She said, in this village, you'd know me and I'd know you. I'd know your children and you'd know mine. Not just on a surface level, favorite foods, games, and such, but real, true knowledge of the soul that flickers behind their eyes. I'd trust them in your arms just as much as I'd trust them in mine. They'd respect you and they'd heed your no. I miss that village of mothers that I've never had. The one we traded for homes that despite being a stone's throw apart from one another feel miles apart. The one we traded for locked front doors blinking devices and afternoons alone on the floor playing one-on-one -on -one with our little ones. But what gives me hope is that as I look at you from across the park with your own child in tow, playing in her own corner of the sandbox, I can tell from your curious glance and your shy smile that you miss it too. She's on to something. There is something in our hearts that is wired for connection. We want to be bound to one another. 
we see this play out in the early church in really some amazing ways. Did you, did you kind of glaze over, skip really fast over those verses that I read, that they had everything in common, that they were selling the things that they owned in order to give to people who needed things? I think oftentimes when, they re- when we read that, you know, with our American individualistic uh, capitalist Texan eyes, we either go, I don't know what to do with that, I don't want to mess with it, or we speed right by, or we try some sort of kind of theological gymnastics to get around it somehow. But guys, it's really there. <laughs> and it is just as radical as it sounds. I had a professor in seminary that says, listen, when the Bible leans on you, let it lean. Don't try to explain it away. And this passage leans pretty hard, doesn't it? There is no way to explain away what's going on here. It's radical. But you know what? When the Holy Spirit gets a hold of people's hearts and communities, when God is at work through the gospel in churches, radical things happen. And we see that happening here. People are bound together in deep and intimate ways because that's how God has created us to be, bound together. See, oftentimes we can get this idea, again, because we are individualistic, individualistic, because we are usually very capitalist in our understanding of how we treat our stuff. So we have this false idea that that's actually where we find happiness. The more stuff we accumulate, the more happiness we get. But that is actually proven not to be true. There's a study that was done at Harvard University, that, that, you know, that, that little school up in the Northeast, over 72 years, long-term study, really asking the question, what makes us happy? What makes us really happy? Here's the answer they found. Connection to other people. That's what actually produces happiness in us. Listen to this quote from one of the researchers. He says, the most fundamental revelation of the discipline of neurobiology is that we are wired to connect. Neuroscience has discovered that our brain's very design makes it sociable inexorably drawn into an intimate brain-to-brain link-up whenever we engage with another person. We are wired to connect. Let's do some real talk here. We're in a time that makes it difficult. So let's just talk about how we handle that connection right now. Here's the first thing I want to remind us of. We've given up a lot, right? Everybody's really spaced far apart. We have a hard time seeing each other. We can't give each other the big hugs that we would like to give each other, maybe even shake hands. We can't sit really close to one another and talk intimately like we'd like to. We can't even see all of our faces half the time. Friends, those are good things. They're good things that God has given us, and they're really beneficial and helpful things. But listen to this. They are not the ultimate thing. If you are united to Jesus by faith, then you are united to one another because you belong to Christ. We are brothers and sisters. We cannot get any closer spiritually than we are because Jesus has made it so. The truth about who we are in our union with one another is true whether or not we're in the middle of a pandemic or not. It is true whether or not you have to wear a mask. It is true whether or not you have to stay far apart from someone or if you can come give them a big hug. Big hugs are great. We're looking forward to having them back. But the truth is still true. That's number one. 
The second thing that I want us to consider here is that we oftentimes talk about getting back to normal. I use those words. When are we going to get back to normal? But let me just ask you, do we really want the old normal? Do we want the old normal of everybody running around crazy like a chicken with its head cut off trying to get to the next appointment? Do we want the old normal of, 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 a, of a child's sporting event in a different city every weekend? Do we want the old normal of nobody ever sits around our table and eats? Do we want the old normal of lives that are so full to the brink that we have no space at all physically or emotionally for one another? I hope not. I hope we don't want the old normal. So why don't we use this opportunity to dream a little bit about what the new normal could look like? What would koinonia look like in our church? What would it look like for us to have real, deep, intimate connection with one another? For people to share their lives, not just on surface levels, but on real, deep levels. For people to be knit together with their lives so closely together that you don't know how you might be able to live without the other person next to you. To have the truth that you are united to Jesus be displayed in how you unite with one another. This is the second big piece that we really, is, is really our goal in this church, is to connect with one another. You heard Alyssa give you a lot of opportunities for that coming up soon. We can serve together this coming Saturday. We can uh, enjoy each other in our homes, in community groups. Again, if you feel safe doing so, I would encourage you to join a community group. You can talk to me or to Kathy, and we'll ha happily get you plugged into, plugged into one. Or come connect over a breakfast taco or some barbecue early in the morning if you're a guy. Or connect with a Bible study if you're a lady. We want to have those places for you to connect. All right, let's move on to the last bit. It's not just connection with one another, but actually connection to our neighbors. Let me read you again some of the things that we've read before but maybe skipped over. Verse 43, awe came upon every soul. And I think every soul there is not just the Christians, but every soul. And many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. And then if you go back here, uh, 40, uh, 46, day by day, attending temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And then this wonderful line, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. What Luke is talking about here is that when people outside the church looked inside and they saw the glory of the God who was being worshipped and they saw the beauty of the community formed around that God, they liked it and they wanted to be a part of it. There's this old joke that says you never want to see the inside of a sausage factory or a church, right? Because you don't really want to know what's going on behind the scenes. You know what the Bible actually proclaims is just the opposite. That actually people should see the inside of the church and they should be drawn to it. They should want that confusing and incredible beauty that they see displayed there. They should desire it. And God's people should be moving outward to bring others in. We've used this illustration before, right? But think about, think about a circle of people. They're in a circle. 
They're holding hands. It's like a football huddle, and you've got the quarterback in the middle calling the play. Well, you really have actually just described there the two pieces that we've just talked about. They're all around, centered on one thing. They're connected to the quarterback who's calling the play. Of course, in the church, this is being connected to the Lord. And they're connected to one another, aren't they? They're in a circle, close, shoulder to shoulder, holding hands, deeply connected to each other. But now take that circle in the way that we oftentimes think about it and flip it inside out so that they're still holding hands, they're still in a circle, but they're facing outward, looking outward toward those who are not yet a part of the church, still centered on the Lord, still connected to Him, still connected to each other, but now also connected to their neighbors and the world around them. That is the way, actually, that the church has, has God's people have been uh, called to be that throughout the Scriptures. Even way back early on in Genesis 12, when God calls Abraham, he says, you know, your job is actually going to be to bless the world. I'm going to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And through you, through you and your family and the amazing people of God that will come out of that, all of the world will be blessed. God's people are meant to be the vehicle of blessing for the world. And to be united to Jesus is not just to be united to him in salvation, but also to be united to him in mission. To be united to his mission, to see the ends of the earth filled with God's glory. That's our job as a church, to promote and proclaim that glory to our neighbors, our friends, strangers, our enemies. Aren't those great categories too? Enemies, strangers, friends, strangers, of course, are those we probably understand. They're the people that kind of wander in that we don't know, not necessarily connected to anybody. Sometimes maybe they're the people that wander in and we're not really sure what to do with them. Sometimes they're just people that we don't know, and oftentimes we don't really know what to do with them, do they? Do we? They kind of come into our lives or they come into our church, and we're really not sure how to connect. So it's great to just ask ourselves, what do we do with strangers? How do we welcome them? How do we love them? If you've read the parable of the Good Samaritan, you'll remember that what Jesus says it means to be a neighbor is a stranger. It's the stranger that actually is the one who shows what it means to be a neighbor in that parable. What about enemies? What do I mean when I say enemies? Well, here's how the author Chuck Klosterman talks about enemies. This is what he says. He says, you know, it rarely matters who's on your side. What matters is who's against you. You don't need a friend and you don't need a lover. What you need is A, one quality nemesis, and B, one arch enemy. These are the two most important characters in the life of any successful human. We measure ourselves against our nemeses and we, do, and we long to destroy our arch enemies. Nemeses and arch enemies are the catalyst for everything. Now I know what you're probably asking yourself. How do I know the difference between my nemesis and my arch enemy? Well, here's the short answer. You kind of like your nemesis, despite the fact that you despise him. If your nemesis invited you out for cocktails, you would probably accept the offer. And if he died, you would attend his funeral, and privately, you might shed a tear over his passing. But you would never have drinks with your arch enemy, unless you were attempting to spike his gin with hemlock. If you were to perish, your arch enemy would dance on your grave, and then he'd burn down your house. You hate your arch enemy so much that you try to keep your hatred secret because you don't want your arch enemy to have the satisfaction of being hated. He's, of course, being funny. But isn't it interesting that 
Those people do show up in our lives, right? I wonder who that image is that you have in the back of your head right now about who your enemy is. And I wonder if you remember then how Jesus tells us who we are to love. Enemy. How about our friends? Who are the friends that we want to bring in to his church, to God's church? Well, it's really just the people that you know. It's, you know, as Mr. Rogers said, the people in your neighborhood. It's the people that live next door. It's the people that you have, you know, social life together with, that belong to the same clubs or societies or share, you know, your similar kind of activities. It's the folks you work with. It's the people you run into kind of on a daily basis in your life. They're the people that are connected to you in all of your life but may not be connected actually to Jesus. So what would it mean for us to invite our friends in to come and to know the best thing about us? To come in and to know the thing that we hold the most dear. To invite our friends and our neighbors, maybe even family members, to come and meet the one who has done for us the most amazing thing that has ever happened in our lives. God's people are to be that circle facing outward toward strangers, welcoming them in, toward enemies, even moving toward them, and toward friends, inviting them into this incredible, beautiful, confusing world of the gospel. Of course, all of this is empowered by what Jesus has done for us. What I've actually just told you is the story of the gospel, is that Jesus has left the perfect koinonia of Father, Son, and Spirit, and he has come to strangers, those who didn't know him, who were actually even more than that, his enemies, those who were moving against him, desperately running away. And he has come to those enemies and strangers, and through his work, on the cross and through his uh, resurrection and through his ascension and through his coming again, he has made us friends. He has brought us in to connect with him. This is someone worth connecting to, isn't it? Let's pray that we would be enabled to do that in our hearts and in our lives and in the church. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful just to be able to say those words that you have left the fellowship of the Trinity to become one of us, to take on a strange form in many ways, to pursue your enemies, to invite them to your table and to make them your friends. And Lord, to do so at the cost of your own life. This is glorious news. It is news that makes us want to be devoted to you, to those who are sitting here and others in your church united together, and Lord, to those who are outside that we might desire to bring them in. Lord, we show us what it means to connect deeply today. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.